don't know if you know this about me, um, but I'll tell you anyway, I married well, right? I married well. Um, my wife is, is not a, uh, now hang with me because this is going to sound bad, but I'm going to recover nicely. She's not super vain, all right? She's not a fashion guru. Um, she doesn't spend too much time worrying about what she is going to wear. I think it's because she's worrying about what I'm going to wear, what our kids are going to wear. Um, she's not into clothes or trendy styles, but yet she always, watch this, manages to look beautiful. Insert camera shot now, right? <laughs> yeah. And I love that about her. But, but there's, there's one thing that she does not love about me, and that is the season of fall. Fall is my favorite season. Um, I, I, love it. I love it. I think God gave us a gift yesterday morning when you walked out and you thought, oh my goodness, college football is officially here. It feels like fall. And then about 3 o'clock, it was about 85 degrees and we were sweating. But, but I love fall because that's when I get to put on blue jeans. This is my uniform in the fall. Blue jeans and a button-down shirt, untucked, right? That's fall to me. It is not fall to my wife. She prefers that I wear my shirt tails tucked in. She keeps me straight. And it's a, a daily reminder in the fall of that show that used to come on and may still come on called What Not to Wear, What Not to Wear, all right? And so here you have two fashion, I guess you could say the fashion police, these fashion gurus who would find some poor, unfortunate soul who could not dress him or herself. They go into the closet and they think, what in the world are you thinking? This is what you should be wearing. They dress them up and they're ready for 2016 or whatever the year is that they're filming this video. They give them a whole new wardrobe. We live in a world today that there, there are some expectations that wherever you go that you dress appropriately. I have found throughout my 35 years of existence, and I was reminded again this summer um, at, uh, at Carowinds that Carowinds is the exception, right? Any major theme park that you go in, there's not many expectations as to what you wear or what you should wear. If you have something that covers you somehow or another, you're allowed into the park. It's like check your, check your pride at the gate and come on in and ride some roller coasters, right? But everywhere else we go, there are expectations as to what we should wear or what we should look like. When you go to work tomorrow or, or Tuesday, uh, you, you, you'll dress appropriately. When you go to school, you'll dress appropriately. I'm hunting tomorrow, and so I'm going to wear camouflage. I'm going to go to the office on Tuesday, and so I'll wear khakis with a shirt tucked in. There's a dress code. There are expectations. Uh, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at the fact that there, there is an expectation or there is a dress code for us as believers, and we find that in the book of Colossians chapter 3. So turn with me to Colossians 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. And Paul says this to the church. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand, set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. 
And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, Paul says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him, God the Father. Paul here is writing to a church that he did not establish. Most likely, we see in chapter 1, verse 7, that Epaphras started the church, but Paul felt a very real need to encourage the church and refute some bad teaching that had been going on there within the membership. We aren't exactly sure what the false teachers were preaching, but some commentators say that it was a mix of Hellenistic and Jewish traditions that, listen to this, was pleasing to the ear, that was easy to hear, and Paul had a few things to say about these things that w- uh, which were easy for the believer to hear. Paul's letter to the Colossians was focused on Christ as Lord, which is not altogether a bad theme for a letter. He explained, though, that for the believer, living with Christ as Lord, there are, expe- there are a few expectations that we are to abide by. We begin in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. And I think it's important that we start there this morning. Paul is addressing those who say that they are in Christ. He assumes that if they identify with Christ, that they are seeking the things above, and then he encourages them to continue seeking those things above. You have to ask yourself the question, and we know the answer, but let's just review. Why would we seek the things above? Well, the answer is there in the text because that's where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so a quick reminder for us as believers, as Christians, Christian, let that be your focus, not on the things of earth, but on the things above. And we'll come back to that shortly. I think Paul does some clarifying here in the first two verses. The expectation is that Christians would have a different focus. And because they have a different focus, they would in turn look different. And they would look differently. There's a clear distinction in the beginning of the text and the rest of the text, and we pick up in verse 5. 
with the idea of putting aside, or as Paul says, considering things dead. Verse 5, therefore, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to what? To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Most commentators, when we look at verse 5 and verse 8, put these, these lists of sins into two categories. The first category are these filthy sins outlined in verse 5. The second category are these sins that are labeled as sins in good standing, or I would say these palatable sins, these sins that we as the church seem to tolerate for one reason or another. And we would say that the list of verse 5 is a lot more uh, detrimental to the life of the believer than the list of verse 8. And Paul says, no, 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 no. They're all terrible. They're all to be put off. Verse 5, therefore, in other words, on the basis of what I have said, on the basis of what I've outlined to you thus far, church, understand your identity and your power in Christ. And because you understand your identity and your power in Christ, you are now able to live it out. Living while putting to death, it seems odd, doesn't it? But this is what Edie says, since... Such are the characteristics and prospects of your spiritual state. Act in harmony with them. And since you have died, diffuse the process of death through all your members. If the heart is dead, let all the organs which once vivified and moved die too. Nay, put them to death. Let them be killed from want of nutriment and exercise. This is this word mortification that pops up in the text here. The word mortify comes from the same Latin word that, that we get our word mortuary from. Mortuary is a place where you put dead people. To mortify means to destroy the strength of something, to destroy its vitality, and to put it where dead things go. Jesus alluded to this idea of mortification in his Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, this is a little graphic here on a Sunday morning early, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away. There's action involved in our response to sin, to tear and to cut and to throw. These are things that we are to do immediately. Jesus is saying, don't delay. Do it now, lest you become comfortable in the sin. Now, let me, let me illustrate this for you. My family will never have a pet snake. Will never, ever have a pet snake. I detest snakes. I've seen enough, or maybe I've heard enough exaggerated stories of, of little boys who come home with this pet snake that they find in the woods. They put it in this aquarium, and they eventually have to put it in a bigger aquarium, and put it in a bigger aquarium, and put it in a bigger aquarium. Eventually, the, snakes eat, the snake eats the entire family, right? That's what I imagine <laughs> happening. And you want to sit back and you want to say to this family, of course the snake ate you because that's what snakes do. The only snake, in my opinion, is a dead snake. That's why I won't hunt until December. I don't want to mess with any, any snakes. But this is the idea of becoming comfortable with our sin. And this is what happens. It will eventually eat us. Amen. Jesus says, put it to death, throw it away, do it immediately. Listen to this, but remember that there can be no holiness or growth in Christ-like maturity when the power of sin is allowed to reign unhindered. We have died to sin's penalty, but 
since power can still be strong and our flesh is weak. Sin is like a deposed monarch who no longer reigns nor has the ability to condemn but works hard to debilitate and devastate all his former subjects. Sin is still potent. And success against it demands decisive action, independence on God's grace and spirit. And then we're reminded in Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Romans 8, 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. And so we get back to these these sins, the palatable ones in verse 8, but now back to the filthy ones in verse 5. And let me define them for you very, very quickly, Paul says this, that we are to put aside, we are to remove immorality from our lives. Originally, immorality referred to something, anything that was excessive, a behavior that lacked constraint, but as it, as it continued to evolve, eventually it became associated with sexual excess and indulgence. 1 Corinthians 6.13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And then I would say there are these subcategories to immorality, and Paul lists them continuing in verse 5. There's impurity. Any substance that is filthy or dirty or cold or the contents of graves. There's passion, this experience of a strong desire used by the Greeks here in this text as good or bad, but here we see these are bad Passions. There are evil desires. Evil desires defined as wickedness, as an evil habit of the mind. And we pause here and we say, just as a review, that it is our desires that lead to our deeds. It's our desire that leads to our deeds. And Paul goes on and he says to put off greed. Greed shows what we desire in the context the desire are of things impure. And the reason that we put off these things is because they lead to idolatry. And it's setting us up for something that isn't meant to be worshipped. Idolatry. Paul says we put off these things. Because of who you are in Christ, you put off these things. Because if you're not careful your attention and your worship will be put back on them. And that's the old you. Secondly, we see those sins that are in good standing. But now, verse 8, you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. We know from James 1, 19 and 20 that we as believers are called to be slow to anger. Ironside writes this, anger as we know it from Ephesians 4, 26 may be righteous, but generally it is the raging of the flesh. Even where anger is warranted, we see that in Mark 3, 5, where we read that our blessed Lord looked at his opponents with anger because of the hardness of their hearts. It must not be nursed or it will degenerate into wrath. Paul goes on and he says, after anger there is wrath, which can be defined as outbursts of anger, intense expressions of of the inner self. We read again in Ephesians 4.31, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Well, look there in Colossians 3, 
Verse 8, there's malice, this mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition. Malice is not only a moral deficiency, but it destroys our fellowship. And that's, in the greater context, what Paul is talking, to, uh, talking about to the church here. I'm, I'm refuting these false teachings, and I'm trying to build you up and encourage you, and I'm trying to encourage fellowship within the church, unity within the church. And with all these things, there cannot be unity. Slander. Slander is the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which, listen to this, defame, belittle, or damage another's reputation and cause them to fall into disrepute or to receive a bad reputation. No, isn't that why we choose to slander? Because we feel like the person to whom we are speaking needs to look at us higher than somebody else. Paul says there's no, there's no room for that in the church, there's no room for abusive speech, this foul-mouthed speech, words used in poor taste. Ephesians 5.4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Harry Ironside recalled a, a story that he heard. He said, once I heard someone begin a story with the remark, you can imagine him looking around. As there are no ladies here, I want to tell you something I heard the other day. He goes on and he says that a gentleman in the group checked him with a wise answer. And he says, brother, though there are no ladies present, the Holy Ghost is here. Is your story fit for him? And he says, the man blushed in confusion and accepted the rebuke. We did not hear the story. I thought about that this week. I thought, how often are we put into or how often do we initiate situations like these? I, I would argue that this is fastly becoming one of, the most, one of the most dangerous things within the church today. So we allow our mouths to go unbridled and we think that one word to one person doesn't mean a whole lot. It's clear, Paul says, there's no, there's no room for it within the body of Christ. Spurgeon says this, put them all off like old clothes that are never to be worn again. Put off all of these. And so we see what we are to put off. In verses 5 and verse 8, let me illustrate this for you. How many of you have ever gone into your closet to gather a bunch of clothes to give away to Goodwill or another charitable organization. Think about it. Don't raise your hands because that's embarrassing, right? I have. And, and why do we do this? Why do we go into our closet and get a bunch of stuff out to take it to give away to friends or to a charity? Well, the, the reasons are numerous. I think, number one, we are able to go in there because sometimes we've lost weight talking to someone this week and they said, well, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's because we've gained weight and so we've got to get rid of clothes so we can get new clothes. Either way, there's been a weight change. Maybe it's because you just haven't worn a shirt or a pair of pants in well over a year and you decide now because you haven't worn it in a year that you can indeed survive without that article of clothing. Or perhaps it's because you're, you're trendy and you realize that what you have bought or what you have worn or what your closet is full of is no longer in style and so you decide you know what I've got to get a whole new wardrobe 
Whatever the reason, I, I think the reason that most people go into their closet is because they no longer fit to give away clothes. They no longer fit in the clothes that they're wearing. And to give you a visual representation of this, I didn't want you to have to think too hard. I wanted to show you a picture of me. This is probably 1983, 1984, up on the screens. And, and this is what I wore. Now, it's, it's odd to me, this was 30-something years ago, that mothers still choose to torture their boys by putting them in outfits like these, right? Well, I, I'm not listening anymore. That's, yeah, I had bells on my shoes most of the time, so my mom could know where I was at all times. I don't have bells in these shoes. But this is what I wore when I was two or three years old. Can you imagine what I would look like today if I wore these clothes? Well, just so you don't have to think too hard, we, we figured out this is what I might look like today if I wore these clothes. <laughs> it's a scary, scary picture. But here's what I want you to see. And maybe this will help you see it. Explain to your kids that they're going to have nightmares of, of, this, of this guy. Here's what I want you to see. This is what Paul is talking about. How ridiculous, church, do we look when we wear things that don't fit us? Anger, wrath, slander, abusive speech, immorality. How ridiculous do we look? How embarrassing is it for us and our family and the church universal? They no longer fit us, and so we move on and we put on. But before we get to put on, skip down in your outline to how. How do we do this? We see in verse 15 that we're to let the peace of Christ rule within our hearts. It's not entirely different from the common phrase, the peace of God. It's given by Christ. It's perpetuated by His Spirit. We see in John 14, 27, My peace I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be dismayed. Peace is the opposite of chaos, and sin always brings chaos into the life of a believer, but the peace of Christ restores order. It's not just there. Paul says it rules or it umpires our lives. When there is peace in the believer's life, there will be peace in the body. There will be peace in the church. And I think for us, there is an individual responsibility that directly affects the health of the church corporately. This call to live at peace. What does the peace of God do? It gives assurance of acceptance with God. We see that in Romans 5.1. And it gives us assurance of the protection of God. We see that in Philippians 4.7. One commentator says the peace of Christ, the peace he gives, is not only peace we experience when there is no conflict... But like the Hebrew counterpart, the word shalom gives us a sense of wholeness and well-being, completeness and totality. And listen to this. And ultimately, the peace of Christ is even more, for it is in its essence the very presence of Christ. And so how do we do this? Well, we start by understanding we are to allow the peace of Christ to rule our hearts. Secondly, we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. We see that in verse 16. Some translations say, let the word of Christ enter you. There's this transaction that takes place. For the word to enter, we must first 
hear it or we must first read it. We have to be familiar with it. And then there is the application of the word. Listen to Spurgeon's words on that. So I say again, in order that it may dwell in you, you must first let it enter into you. You must really know the spiritual meaning of it. You must believe it. You must live upon it. You must drink it in. You must let it soak into your innermost being as the dew saturated the fleece of Gideon. It's not enough to have the Bible on the shelf. It's infinitely better to have its truths stored up in your soul. It's a good thing to carry your testament in your pocket. It's far better to carry its message in your heart. So once it enters, we let it remain there. We let it dwell there. You think about who do you know the best. You know the best, those people that live with you in your dwelling, in your home. And so the picture here is us becoming more than acquainted with the Word of God. We know it because it dwells within us. And we don't miss the second part of verse 16. We let it make us wise. Well, why? That's part of the how. Why? Well, we understand but it, because it's our old self that we're trying to get far away from. We do it so that we'll have a spiritual appetite restored. And like we see in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we will crave pure spiritual milk. We put on the new self in the process of being renewed. And the renewal results in a different look. We see there going on in the rest of the text that we are holy and beloved. We are chosen children of God. We contrast our holiness with what we see in verse 5 and verse 8. We're supernaturally set apart and we're separated from the profane, from the common, from the unholy world. We are beloved. We are unconditionally loved. And so then we put on. We put on what? We put on a heart of compassion. Not just a physical heart, but rather the foundation of our affections and our emotions. The word compassion is the reaction of pity. There's action involved in the life of the believer who has put on a compassionate heart. And then we see that action played out in next, our kindness. Best expressed in attitude and deed, Ray Stedman says, kindness is action and reveals compassion. Then there's humility, the quality of unpretentious behavior. Listen to this definition. I love this definition. The word indicates the esteeming one's self as small, or recognizing one's insufficiency, but at the same time recognizing the powerful sufficiency of God. There's gentleness. The Greek word used in the text describes the quality of not becoming overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. We also know the Greeks use this word to describe a soothing wind or a healing medicine. There's something about a gentle spirit. There's patience, the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. And so we are patient with each other. And look at what Paul says, bearing with and forgiving one another. When we put on the new man, we put on our new clothes, and we take off the things that don't fit us, and we throw it away, we, we, we bury it. The rules of engagement change. Someone says this, grudges must be jettisoned. Revenge must be resisted and we leave the judging to God and we're reminded again in Ephesians 4.2 the words of Paul with all humility and gentleness with patience showing tolerance for one another in love and Paul says in our text beyond all these things put on love. Literally upon all these things. 
upon all these things, or on top of love, show. You show these things. We're able to put on through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're reminded of what happens to our lives when we're yielded to the Spirit. And we see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me close with these words from Spurgeon. See how our being Christians does not relax the bonds of our Christian relationship, but it calls us to the higher exercise of the responsibilities and duties connected therewith. Do not draw any line of demarcation and say, so far is secular and so far is religious. Let your whole life be religious. And if there is anything proposed to you in which you cannot glorify God, do not touch it. Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And so, Christian, be what you are. We see Colossians 3 and 4, the urging of Paul for us to be in practice. Be in practice what we are in position in Christ. We pray. God, we thank you so much for moments like these, for reminders in your word, for the encouragement that we see in this text and so many others. God, I pray that if there are any here this morning who are stuck in old clothes, they long to be clothed by Christ, that they would respond in this time of invitation. Have your way in these next few moments. Holy Spirit, move unhindered. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand, and as the choir sings, if you'd like to respond, if you'd like to talk about getting into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you. As the choir sings, you respond.